Hello, you're listening to Sarah Archer and episode 41 of the Speaking Club podcast. Now, in business, successful market disruption is almost always more about the business model than the product. Just as in school, successful class disruption was almost always more about the teacher than the pupil. At least that's what I told my parents. I started this podcast for two reasons. Because I want to help people recognise the power of stories and humour in speaking and because I believe it's your message that counts, not the number of ums and ahs you use. There are some organisations that want to create robot speakers. They want you to sacrifice your personality in order to speak perfectly. But I want to let you know that you can be yourself and a sensational speaker. So, if you want to be a speaker that connects and engages authentically through stories, a speaker that gives value as well as a great performance, then welcome home. Welcome to the show. This is the last episode in our sales-themed month. Oh. Next month, the theme's going to be productivity, though. And who amongst us can't do better there? I've definitely gotten off track with some of my goals. So along with some awesome guests who are speakers on productivity, I'll be taking on something called the Miracle Morning 30-Day Challenge. And that's from the 1st of July. I've heard amazing things about Hal Elrod's Miracle Morning. And many people that I admire and respect, like Robert Kiyosaki, Pat Flynn and and, uh, Tim Saunders have all used it and use it still and say that it's made a massive difference to their focus, to their energy and getting things done. Now, I'm going to share more about the Miracle Morning and what it is next month and the results that I've gotten myself during the challenge. But now, on to this show. Now, my guest today, Carl Reader, is an unorthodox accountant, I think it's fair to say, and it's it's, it's an unorthodoxy. I think it is, plus his passion for shaking things up that's been a significant factor in his business success. Now, in this show, we're going to be talking about startups, about scaling business, and, you know, as a speaker business as well, scaling that, sales and speaking. And not to mention one event where Carl accidentally created some unforgettable special effects for his audience. Well, off we go. Business expert, author, accountant, entrepreneur, and speaker, Carl Reader. Welcome to the Speaking Club. Hey, Sarah. Thank you very much for inviting me. Oh, you're welcome. I'm I'm going to be picking your brain, so you'll earn your earn your keep, so to speak. <laughs> I've, I've read a lot about it, so I'm really interested to uh, to hear what your view on a lot of stuff. So cool. Now, th- that being said, I, you have a fascinating backstory. It's not typical of a start to to where you've got to can you take me through a brief history of Carl Reader and tell me how you arrived at what you do today yeah of course but I'm not going to go back to the delivery room because I think that will bore the pants of everyone (laughs) listening but if I if I just give you a bit of background about how I fell into um, what I do today because everything along the way has been more by luck than judgment so when I was at school, I was um, what is now known as ADHD. So I, I've got adult ADHD. And at school, you know, we're talking, Christ, 20, 21 years ago now. Um, that was just known as being a bit of a little sod. So <laughs> I left school before doing my GCSEs and decided to do a YTS in hairdressing. Now, that didn't turn out too well. And quite frankly, it was slave labour. It was £29.50. I don't know, Sarah, if you remember YTS. £29.50 per week. I had to work 48 hours. had to pay for my buses to get there and back. I don't know how I made it work. Um, So I lasted all of six weeks as a YTS hairdresser. Um, Realised it wasn't the career for me. So went back to school, did my GCSEs, and then had to get a real job. Now, the process that I went through to get a real job wasn't actually very structured it wasn't very well thought through I got the job paper on a Thursday and I just applied for the first three jobs that I saw there was two in accountancy firms and one in the army um believe it or not I was underweight for the army at the time but I got offered both accountancy jobs so there you go that's that's how I fell into um chartered accountancy I guess 
without having a clue about what an accountant does, um, what they're expected to do, what their personality is supposed to be like. I just went for it. So as you can imagine, I mean, first of all, that that perhaps upset the others who I was working with, who might have had a career in a profession as one of their objectives in life. And they might have studied through A-levels and degrees. I, I just turned up and talked a good game and got the job. <laughs> Unfortunately, I got the job, but I wasn't really very suited to accountancy because there was nothing worse to somebody with ADHD than sitting down, adding up numbers, looking at spreadsheets. You know, spreadsheets came in about 1998, 1999. Yeah. Um, it just wasn't my bag. And I realised that what I actually enjoyed doing was going out and helping people. So that's what I did. I just went out and did anything to avoid real work. I would go out, speak to business owners and just ask them why they did what they did. So fast forward from the start of the career or start of the accidental career to about 2000 and 2013, 2014. By that point, I'd, um, I'd been involved in the buyout of the firm. So it was now owned by myself and my business partner, Ben. Um, I hadn't done a set of numbers by that point for about eight to nine years. And I got offered the chance to write a book. Now that offer again was by luck rather than judgment. So not only do I need to apologize to accountants, I need to apologize to authors as well. One of my mates um, posted on Facebook, does anybody know anyone who could write a book on startups? Funnily enough, it's probably a guy that you know, a guy called Rob Brown. And it was in what used to be the Speaker's Corner group on Facebook. I believe it was, the, before that, it was the PSA group. So I put my hand up and said, Rob, yep, uh, funnily enough, I'm halfway through doing it. I wasn't. Um, no, nobody knew that. Um, got the contract, wrote the first book. So I did that kind of by accident because most people go about building a profile with the aim of building a book. I was fortunate enough to have done myself out of a job and to have um, written a book but actually with no profile whatsoever so 2016 i set out on what it was that really drives me as an individual which is helping people yeah. and spreading that word further and further so i watched a guy called gary vaynerchuk who i'm sure most of your listeners yeah. have heard of um one sentence that he said really resonated with me which was that an audience of one is better than an audience of none so in that was in December 16, January 17, I just made it my mission to get an interview per day. By the end of that month, I had five bits of coverage in the national press. And it's kind of gone from there, really. Excellent. Well, I want to step back just a bit. What attracted you sure. to being a hairdresser in the first place? What was it that floated your boat before you found out it wasn't for you? What I'm curious what, what it was. I mean, it's a can great question, but I'm yeah, can I be, Can I be honest? I went to a boys' school. So I went to a boys' school, and it just felt like a way to meet people. Girls, specifically, I suppose. Absolutely. So, um, you know, I, I used to believe it or not, I had hair once upon a time. So back then, I actually had hair, so I did used to look after myself. Um, so I enjoyed, you know, I enjoyed grooming, all of that sort of stuff. So, mm. so it was something that I enjoyed doing, but quite frankly, it was a, um, it was a way to, to meet people, to be sociable, that's what I wanted to do. Um, if it wasn't a hairdresser's, it could have been bar work if I was old enough. It could have been something else. I, I just wanted to speak to people. Brilliant. And that kind of comes through in what, in what you do today, I guess. But um, one of the things that I wanted, because I have, I have done a, a fair amount of looking at the stuff that you've done. Oh, Jesus. And... You're going to find me out, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> the opposite. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the opportunity to, uh, to really sort of get underneath it all but so what for, you know the accepted wisdom is you know whether you're talking about speaking or business that to be successful you need to pick a lane and find your niche and people find this a challenge but it seems like when you took over that accountancy firm that is exactly what you did whether intentionally or unintentionally and I kind of like was that by design or was it by accident because you're the count the firm that you own specializes quite quite you know in a very sort of small niche doesn't it yeah so that surprisingly was actually by design uh yeah i've said a lot of things were by luck rather than judgment i can actually put that one down to design when i joined dnt 
there was the forming of a niche market, uh, which was actually martial arts schools. Uh-huh. So um, the one of the partners at the time, a guy called Julian, looked after a few martial arts schools. Um, I, I say a few, that, that actually does him a real disservice. It was about 30. Um, so it's a good bunch of martial arts schools. Now, you probably wouldn't have imagined there was 30 martial arts schools in the UK. Um, there's actually about 600. Wow. So I picked up that client base and I realized that yeah, there was there was something to be said for marketing specifically to martial artists rather than to businesses in general, um, to getting to understand what it is they do and really get to the core of their industry. So short of putting on a set of pajamas and punching and kicking, I got to find out what it is that makes their business successful, the kind of language that they talk, uh, what they enjoy. Um, you know, I, really, I really got to, to know it. And we, we built that up to about 150 martial arts schools. So we, we got a really good market share. And certainly I can't think of anyone else who's ever been anywhere near that level of um, that level of penetration within the martial arts market. And that, that was all by just understanding the niche. But the interesting thing was it didn't close off outdoors to any other businesses. Yeah. So a lot of people panic about going into a niche market because they worry it will turn other people away. Yeah. And that didn't happen. Franchising was the next one. And yeah. this was very simply down to one of the schools that we worked alongside, they were franchising. And I felt, you know, this is a good idea. It's a good way of making some money quite quickly. So I went to a franchise expo in 2004 and I just kept turning up. And again, it was a case of just getting to know the industry, getting to know the people, understanding the pain points in the industry and then designing a solution around it. Wow. And do you think, I mean, do you think that if you'd have come from a different background into the sort of accountancy or that profession, that you would have had more of a sort of, oh, it's not possible because what you seem to have is a, I'll make it happen and and not sort of knowing that it's not possible. Has that helped you, do you think, in your career? Yes, I don't think it's so much background. Um, I mean, my background is very different to most accountants. So most accountants will be reasonably privileged in their upbringing, um, would have their educational needs net. Now, I went to a very good, I went to a grammar school. um, But again, that was just by passing the 11 plus rather than um, any private tutoring or anything. So um, I think that it's it's not the it, it, it's not the background before accountancy that's done it, but it's actually I I believe is my personality type. So I tend to when I look at recruiting new team members, I use a tool called disc profiling. Yes. Uh, you might have come across it. Many yeah. of your listeners might have done. So you look at the dominance, influence, stability, and compliance. Now, if we want somebody to be a true accountant, you know, if we imagine a stereotypical accountant, grey suit, glasses. Uh, probably 50 to 60, got a high stability and high level of compliance. We don't want them to be particularly dominant. We don't want them to be particularly influential. My personality type is actually the polar opposite of that. So I'm high D, high I. And the the combination of high D, high I is, I believe, what they call the the influencer profile. But it, it also, what comes with it, is an element of wanting to break anything that's there for the sake of breaking it. So I quite enjoy chain. I, I, I like um, just throwing things up in the air and seeing what happens, but also a stubbornness to believe that anyone else is correct. You know, if I, if I, if I think something's going to work, it's going to work. And I think it's the combination of those two that's helped um, d as a business to try new things and, you know, lead the way with certain innovations and just to see where it goes. Excellent. Yeah, I, I guess. And the other thing that I was going to ask you about was this tendency that you have to disrupt the market, or it appears to me that you, you have it. So when you took over the firm, you, you know, became an owner, you, you wanted to grow your client base, you've talked about the karate schools, but you started cold calling. And I don't think that's typical in the accounting world. Is, is that right? And, and what was it that made you, you know, is it just that tenacity and it was going to make it happen that, that made you do that? Yeah, so um, the cold calling is an interesting one. We've actually pulled away from it because we, yeah, you know, we we found now that it's not it's not working as well as it used to because there's uh-huh. a number of bad agencies doing it. 
Wow. Well, I started cold calling back in the days when I was looking to increase the martial arts client base. So I just went on to, um, onto the internet, found a list of martial arts schools, um, looked through for the names that I'd heard of because you get to know the main people and just picked up my phone to them and said, hi, you don't know me, um, but I know of you, would love to have a chat and just went through a cold call process. We actually developed the telemarketing team on a couple of occasions um, and it's, it's really grown and dropped based on the business needs and the offerings that we can put out there. But at one point, we had a cold calling team of five, I believe, um, employed by us. So not outsourced, employed by us. And it worked really well. Again, it wouldn't work for most accountants because you probably know that most accountants are scared to pick up the phone to people they know, let alone people they don't know. Um, but we, we made sure that we recruited the right people who wanted to do that, wanted to speak to people. And, and it worked wonders for us. But that's interesting. That was that's actually going to be my next question, which is so so many, whether you're an accountant or whether you're an entrepreneur, whatever field you're in, so many of us know that we should be picking up the phone to, to talk to people to sell, but it ends up falling to the bottom of our list and then probably off the list. Have you got any tips around this for people? Yes, man up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, what, what, it, what it comes down to, Sarah, is... The biggest problem in business is that people don't take action. So they tend to either obsess over the dream. I've I've got a four-step model, dream, plan, do, review. They obsess over the dream and they build up that dream to be bigger and bigger and bigger. Or the dream isn't big enough. Then they look at planning. And this is where particularly accountants can fall into a trap of planning and planning and planning. And then planning about when they're going to plan the plan. and they become spreadsheet millionaires by keep tapping away on zeros on a keyboard. <laughs> but they don't take the step of picking up the phone and actually, you know, what, what I call wearing out shoe leather, getting out there and trying to win new business. Um, the final step of that review, which isn't really relevant to, to this question. Um, but in order to become a successful entrepreneur, I believe that you need to have a, a bit of a rounded skill set that includes sales, it includes marketing, it includes operations, systems, processes, human resources, change management, making cups of tea, cleaning, decorating, the whole lot, until you're at a point where you can recruit or outsource to take that off with your hands. But in the early days, you need to get on with some of that stuff and some of it will be comfortable and some of it will be uncomfortable. So there will be some people who would be more than happy to pick up the phone, but would actually be quite uncomfortable with um, the difficult conversations with a tax man or with how to produce adverts. You know, there can be different levels of comfort across the various things that are needed. But telesales, and in fact, the whole sales process in particular, they, they tend to get pushed to the bottom of the queue. And I think it comes down to a fear of rejection, the fear of somebody saying no, and the fear of somebody saying, you know what, your business isn't as good as you think it is. Your product isn't as good as you think it is. So you really just need to get skin like a rhino and get on with it. Yeah, yeah, ex- exactly. It's so interesting because there's, there's another question I'll ask, but in your book, yeah. Startup Coach, yeah, you have like a list of questions that you, you sort of set out straight at the start to people and say, you know, is it right for you to be an entrepreneur? And, and you mm. don't, you know, your style is you don't pull any punches and those questions don't pull any punches because it's not right for everyone, is it? Not at all. Look, I'm one of the drivers for me on this. There's a few different drivers as to why I wanted to really build out my advice beyond one-to-one meetings to to actually impact a wider group of people. And yeah, one of the core cool reasons is that there's so many rip-off merchants out there who all, all they want to do is to sell you the dream. So you see these Facebook millionaires, you know, people who say that. They, they've made five million. They've made five million since they've been in business, not in one year. It's also turnover, not sales. They're spending four and a half million on advertising. And when you break it down, it, there's a lot of people getting ripped off. So, um, so I wanted to make sure that whatever I gave out was in plain English, but also was um, meeting my personal values. Um, you know, making sure that everything I do is with integrity, making sure that I deliver it with passion and that it's in plain English. And integrity says that this information's out there anyway, 
So let's just give it to people as straight and as plain talking as possible so that they can decide before investing lots of money whether they are cut out for business or not. Yeah. Yeah, that's a very sensible, a very bit sort of sensible thing to be checking before you do, you know, leave a job or a secure lifestyle and make that leap because it's not it's not easy. That that's for sure. What do you no, it's about? it's horrific, isn't it? <laughs> it? It really is. You know, there's um, it's such a roller coaster ride. But the amazing thing is that most people who go on that roller coaster ride wouldn't change it for the world. They become unemployable because they don't ever want to go back to working seven hours for someone else they'd rather work 18 hours for themselves yeah no that that's true i mean having left corporate myself what just 18 months ago whatever it was now i and i i don't think i could go back and i don't want to so uh so there we are but it's a couple of things that i wanted to pick up on you talked about people um talking about the dream and getting stuck in that loop and i just wanted to sort of make a point i don't know if you know this but just for the listeners apparently there's there's some reward in just talking about it like there's some psychological um thing that happens that almost rewards us for for talking Mm. about it rather than doing it but that you know it doesn't help you to get stuck in in that loop really yeah so I, I agree to a point, but I also think that there's some benefit for certain people to talk about it and make a really big meal out of it because some of us are externally validated, some of us are internally validated. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'm very much, most people who are in business like to think that they're internally validated, you know, that they can pat themselves on the back and that they are motivated more by pleasure than pain. Now, I'm maybe one of a few who's honest with themselves, but I'm externally validated. Now, you can tell that if somebody's wearing a bit of designer clothes or if they are trying to get their voice out there, they are probably externally validated. They are probably driven by other people saying, what a great job you've done, rather than realising it themselves. So I'm externally validated, but I'm also motivated more by pain than pleasure. And you can always notice that by just looking back at when you were at school, if you had a project to do, did you do it last minute or did you do it well in advance? Yeah. Are you motivated by the deadline or are you actually motivated by the pleasure of doing it? So I like to think that I'm self-aware enough to know how I'm motivated. Now, part of that is with that unique combination of being externally validated and motivated by pain. If I talk about what I want to achieve, and I talk about it publicly, it becomes so painful not to achieve it, but I have to go and do it. That's because so it's I, status, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. So if I go and put on Facebook, for example, um, but I want to go and lose two stone, and then I don't do it and I'm caught eating a cake, <laughs> the pleasure of eating that cake won't outweigh the pain of being embarrassed and being called a fatty by my mates. <laughs> I love the way. Nice analogy. No, I, 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 I'm the same. I think I'm very similar. So uh, very similar. But have you always been comfortable with selling? Because I, I think I read somewhere that you, you used to be a bit of an entrepreneur when you were young as well, like selling stuff and car washes. Is that right? Yeah, I, it's um, yeah, it's just part of me. Look, I'm, I'm an Essex boy, and um, <laughs> Essex is quite an entrepreneurial area anyway. Uh, but yeah, well, I can't remember how old I was about eight or nine I used to there's a couple of things I used to sell lemonade because some of the kids in the area weren't allowed to go to the shops so I'd buy a big bottle of it happy shop of lemonade 29p and then sell it for 20p per cup um we used to go out car washing as well um yeah always used to get up to whatever I could to make a few quid Excellent. And over the years, have you have you d- developed yourself your your sales ability? Because I know you're also known as a as a as a great networker, and I want to come on to that. But have you done stuff yourself to develop it, or have you just is it just been you going out taking action and so 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 to start yeah so to start with it was just going out and trial and error and winning people over. I hope by personality rather than by technique. But that becomes very limited because there's no matter how friendly or outgoing or um, warm that you feel you are, you actually, you're only performing at 80% of where you can. So in the mid 2000s, when I, I was really developing my own personal job in the business, so at that point I was still employed, um, business development became a big part of it. I started to read a lot of sales books 
And I have to say, a lot of them were absolutely useless. They were, they were very structured and it was either tools to manipulate people yeah. or it was just theoretical nonsense that wouldn't apply. Um, but the books that really worked and the trainings that really worked were had more around personal development. So Tony Robbins was great. Um, you know, he, he had a lot of learnings that really benefited from um dal carnegie was fantastic how to influence and influence yeah. people and then also understanding a bit more about marketing so when i say marketing more about how to um have touch points with your customers those were the things that really helped the whole sales process i would say yeah excellent okay and how important is networking do you believe especially with today's online market um, how important is networking to develop and grow your business? And which is more important, do you think, offline or online? Okay, look, there was a saying that I tweeted you, uh, but I'd heard a couple of times on your podcast, and I promised not to say it. Oh, but I'm yes, going to say it anyway. Is. I'm going to say it anyway. Business isn't B2B or B2C, it's H to H, human to human. Now, I think networking is absolutely vital. As a society, we are moving towards the stay at home economy. And this is true with um, food delivery, with Netflix, with the way that we can have an Uber come and pick us up and take us to where we want to go to if we wanted to go out. Our shopping is all done through Amazon Prime or um, ASOS or whatever, whatever services we use. We're not going out as much. We're not meeting people. And that's got a real impact on business as well because whether, whether it's a sole trader dealing with a sole trader or somebody working at a corporate, dealing with somebody working at a corporate, the transaction is between two individuals. And without networking, you, you risk losing that personal touch and the ability to communicate with others. So I think networking is vital. The online-offline mix is interesting because there's clearly a big shift towards online, and I fully understand it. And a lot of what I've done has been based on online as well. But online can only take you so far. I don't believe that you can build true relationships with people solely online. I don't think that you can really get to the, you, know, you, you can't get to the nub of what they're all about through 140 characters on Twitter. No. Um, however, it's a great way of keeping in touch with people. So the, the strategy that I used was on my online network, and I made sure that I've always had a personal profile as well as the business profiles. But the personal profile is open for other personal profiles of people in business. So I don't have a friends only Facebook. It's open to people who I might work with, people who I might socialize with, people I might have gone to school with. Um, they're all in the same pot and dealing with me as a person. But it is distinct from my business's different social media accounts. So I can be myself. I can have my own tone of voice rather than a corporate tone of voice. Yeah. Now, the networking is normally done face to face, but then I make sure it's supplemented and topped up online. So if you imagine it like a bank account, the big investment is online, but then that investment just drains away with time. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of an analogy on the hop. Let's say it's inflation is eroding the value of your bank account. Yeah. You have to top it. You have to top it up with a few tweets and a few Facebook messages and happy birthdays and so on in between the face to face meetings. But look, I'm a, I'm a social being. I, I much prefer meeting people face to face. Cool. Okay, that's really, that's really uh, good advice. And one thing that I've noticed that you have, and I guess, um, again, is this something intentional or that's just happened, is that you have a really strong personal brand. And again, it's, it's slightly disruptive. How important is it for people to, to have that personal brand, do you think, in terms of winning sales and winning business? So it's becoming more and more important um, based on that um, B2B, B2C, H2H model. Yeah. It's becoming more and more important. However, I think that it's not the be all and end all of winning business. And there's a lot of people who are trying to build a personal brand without having any background. So building the brand before building their expertise of what they're delivering on. So if we were to look at any business, so to, to take a step back from a personal brand, any business has fundamentally got three different processes. So whether it's a speaker business, whether it's a, um, a professional partnership, whether it's a big corporate, you've got your um, operational stuff that you do. So your custom, your, your customer fulfillment, 
you've got your conversion, which is your sales process, and then you've got your marketing. And in an ideal world, you build your operations first. So you build the warehouse, you get the stock in, whatever it is you need to do, you, you make sure that you've got that in place. You then work out how you're going to convert your customers so that you haven't got a leaky bucket, yeah. and then you put the customers in. Now, the problem with personal branding is it sits very firmly on the lead generation side of things. It's, it's very firmly marketing. And the risk for some is that they do that before actually getting their business sorted out. Yeah. But if you, uh, you know, provided you've got that in place, the personal branding's worked really well. It's, again, personal branding is something that was a bit by accident. I, I mean, I watched Gary Vaynerchuk. So there was, on the basis that I actually logged on and watched him, there must have been an interest to the message he was giving, although I didn't lab- at the time I didn't label it as personal branding. Um, but I, I guess as I... I believe if I was to stand against a wall with five other accountants, whoever those accountants are, I'd probably stand out. And that, that's probably helped me. Um, what's also helped me is that there's nobody in the UK, um, certainly in the small business space, that's seen as a recognised face of small business. Yes. So that's, that's the aim for me, is to be the accessible face of business. Um, in the early days, I mapped out my vision for this, um, what my personal values were, um, but also who it was in terms of building a personal brand that I admired and looked up to and felt that I would like to replicate. And the two people that I came up with were Martin Lewis. Um, from a personal finance perspective, he is the personal brand of personal finance. Yeah. And a guy called Justin Urquhart Stewart, who you might remember as the bloke with red braces. Oh, yes. So he, yeah. Yes, he used to go on to BBC and talk about what was going on in big business. Yeah. And I wanted to be some kind of hybrid between the two of them, but for small business. Yeah. And it's still, it's still an ongoing exercise. You know, I'm nowhere near there uh, where I want to be with it. But that, that's what I saw was that there was, a, there was an open goal. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. And, and I guess you've been with the books and with your expertise. I mean, you've done it the right way around. It's funny, I was just talking to uh, someone who who helps people run workshops and and as for speakers and we were talking about how speakers get it the wrong way around as well sometimes like they have a story but no expertise really and then go and get you know try and get speaking gigs but if you do it the other way around you've got expertise maybe and a story it helps you to get more more gigs um so i i think I, i you're absolutely right there so what about for you when did speaking come into the frame and why do you speak? Ah, so I love the sound of my own voice, quite <laughs> frankly. Um, speaking, speaking started in 2004, 2005. Um, I got invited to speak at a, um, at a networking event for martial artists. And there, there was no real details mapped out. I, I really enjoyed it. I spoke for two and a half hours. Wow. I loved it. Everyone else was hungry. <laughs> I, I loved it. Um, and that was a very harsh lesson for me afterwards on reflection. But, you know, perhaps I'd overstepped the mark. Perhaps I hadn't prepared properly. I just got up and talked. So I was fortunate that I didn't suffer like most people do of that fear of getting up and speaking. But actually, it came out the other way. My, my lack of awareness of myself and what professional speaking is all about led to me making the rookie error of, well, I'm enjoying myself, so everyone else is. Um, my second speaking slot was then at a, um, a franchising event. It was about a year afterwards, and I was only too conscious of the mistakes I'd made before. So I was so worried about going a second over my time slot that I became a bag of nerves, um. and my voice went dry, and it was okay. I recovered in about 15 seconds, which um, is, uh, from what I've experienced, tends to be the recovery at the start if you have nerves. Um, and it, it ended up absolutely fine. But it was, whereas the first one, I was absolutely fearless because I was enjoying myself. The second one was a challenge. So, so that was the start of a speaking journey. But along the way, people were enjoying my talks they um i guess again it wasn't a typical accountant's talk and i tried not to make it a typical talk in but i didn't necessarily use powerpoint and if i did it would be for images rather than words and i would never use notes i 
I, I absolutely hate it when I see people stood up with a bit of paper and reading out word for word. So I, I've never had notes, never, never really had PowerPoint and just learned to talk about what I'm comfortable with. Um, and that was okay, but it was by no means professional speaking. I, I went to some PSA events and realized that there was a, this whole other world. Um, went along with a guy who was actually recently on your podcast, Warren Cass, yes. um, who's a phenomenal speaker, and a guy called David Tovey, who's um, also a phenomenal speaker, and learned that there was this, this whole industry around speaking. So this thing that I enjoyed doing and would, would pay to do, there was actually people getting paid to do it. So that's when I realised I, I'd got something wrong and I needed to change the way that I approached it and start looking at it more as a business. Now, oh. I made a decision not to, not, not to earn income from speaking. Um, now, that's to fit in line with my personal values from a personal brand perspective. Um, it felt wrong to charge organisations or charge individuals to hear me speak when I put out there that my stuff is free of charge. Yeah. So that, unfortunately, the decision not to charge caused me a couple of blocks. The first one is in the speaking industry itself. Yeah. Because some people earn their, earn their crust from speaker fees. Yes. And when someone else doesn't charge, they get a bit wound up. And I understand that. Um, it would be like somebody coming along, uh, you know, let's say my business brokerage business and starts offering to do it free of charge. It would be pretty annoying. So I understood that. Yeah. Um, but secondly, it impacted me because I wasn't approaching opportunities proactively. I would pick and choose what I did. It would be inbound only, yeah. and it wasn't really going anywhere very quickly. So I decided to charge fees but donate them to charity. That felt like the comfortable middle ground, and that seems to be working. Um, but it's still not it's still not as professional as it should be. <laughs> and what do you actually speak on? Is it accountancy, or is it is it franchising, or a range of things? So it's mostly small business subjects. Um, in terms of Franchising, I would, uh, funnily enough, I've been engaged by the BFA to talk at their conference quite a few times, but normally it's about the effective use of social media or personal branding. Oh. Um, in the accounting world, look, I have a stakeholder model in my business. We call it the five stars. And the staff at the top, we then see the markets we serve and our clients as equal. And then we see the community and the accountancy industry as equal. If you imagine the five points, yeah. they're in that order. Um, for the accounting industry, I feel an obligation to give back. So I talk about D&T as a firm, what we've done and how we've done it. Or I talk about how I've built a personal brand to build D&T. Um, so that's the, that's the accounting side. I say the franchising side tends to be around subjects affiliated to it. I speak for franchisors but that tends to be more on my small business keynotes that I deliver, but adapted for franchising, so I don't piss off the franchise off. Um, <laughs> and then from a small business perspective, it's either, uh, and there's three, three main talks that I deliver. First one is the future of business, because I'm a bit of a geek. I enjoy learning about VR and artificial intelligence and augmented reality and all that stuff and how it's gonna affect us. So that's my, that's my personal bit of fun. Yeah. Um, the second one that hits my vision of what I want to do is be your own boss. So even if people have got their own boss, even if they've got no intention of working for someone else, about taking ownership of what you do and how you do it. Yeah. And then the final one is about scaling a business because it's very easy to build a business around an individual and speakers fall into this trap very often. Yeah. But business is around them. So typically speaking and a bit of coaching or consultancy. Um, that's the trap they fall into. But if they get run over by a bus, that's their business gone. So I actually explore what it takes to scale a business. Um, I've got a model around that, which um, you know, I believe there's a few things you need in place. And that's, that's one of the things that I deliver to more advanced business owners. Cool. And how do you prepare your talks now, having sort of gone through that journey from that two hour talk to, to where you are today? Is there a difference in the way you prep? Oh, um, dear. Um, do I have to admit this? <laughs> Go on. This might undermine every fee that I charge, but it goes to charity. So it will make whoever, whoever doesn't pay it feel really bad. I don't need to prepare that, that much. 
Okay. Um, there's some parts that I prepare. Yes. Um, so I make sure that the intro is prepared. Yeah. But typically, only on the day when I turn up. Right. Because I like to make it as topical as possible. Oh, um, okay. And if I can hook it into the venue, something that's happened that day in the news, or something that's happened in, even in one of the other talks, I would much rather do that than come up with a very generic, good morning, I'm Carl Reader, this is how important I am. Yes. Yeah. So I leave that side of it until the very last minute. Yeah. The clothes, I tend to prepare before. So we all have that awkward moment where we finished and nobody else knows that we finished. So I try and build a close that is, has a bit of an impact, um, but also makes it absolutely clear that that's the end of the talk. Um, so that's prepared before. Um, in, I guess I shouldn't admit this, but I'm going I'm to bear all Sarah. Um, <laughs> I've got a few that are canned, so to speak, and I, depending on the talk and the type of build up at the end there might you know there's one video that I like to use quite a bit and then that has a certain ending so I try to I I, I try to make sure it works but sometimes it is duplicated if it's a different audience um the in-between bits I tend to just focus very broadly on the structure of what I want to say yeah so the order of the journey that I want the listener to go through yeah. and that and also being conscious of attention span not trying to talk for too long on any one point but I let the material flow, flow freely yeah. because my belief and I'm, I might be naive in thinking this but if I couldn't talk about something intelligently to you one-to-one -one, then I shouldn't be sitting on stage talking about it to 100, 200, 300 people I think uh, that would just be reason. wrong yeah. and it would be undermining my position as a speaker and really offending the audience if I talk about something that's outside of my comfort zone so I guess I'm able to do that based on the fact that I'm selective on what I speak about. Yeah, no, that's very good. No, I think you're absolutely right. It's maintaining a balance between having some structure and, you know, and making sure you're taking the audience on that journey with being natural and relying on the experience that you've got, which is why you're speaking there in the first place, basically. Yeah. Now, if it's if it's a new talk, that's, um, yeah, let's say I was designing a new talk to... Um, to go with in December for example so if it's a December talk I would start designing it now if it was a completely new subject or a new slant or something what I would do to prepare for that is a bit more detailed obviously yeah. um, but there would be the, um, the very broad frame of where I want it to go but then from that frame I would just record myself using a voice memo on my iPhone and I would just talk about it for the spot on time that I needed to be and I would listen back to it once. Now, the reason I do that is to try and pick up on any clever turns of phrases because I found that if I try and map out a phrase or um, a joke, it doesn't go very well. But if I come out with it off the cuff, it works really well. Yeah. And I just do that to see what comes out naturally rather than what comes out on a bit of paper. Yeah, yeah. So how do you get your speaking gigs? Um, do you proactively outbound now to get them or still inbound? How does that work? Mostly inbound. Um, I'm speaking to an agent at the moment. The problem I've got is that speaking to small business audiences, yeah. there's not much in it for the agent because a lot of those slots are, if they're keynoted, they might be a small fee, but it will be a token fee. If they're breakout sessions, normally those sessions are filled by the exhibitors at a business show or whatever. There's, there's very few events that actually, uh, very few small business events that charge attendees and then pay for speakers properly. So there's a few, but not many. Yeah. Now, it wouldn't be worth an agent even putting me on their website if they're not going to get a return. So they only take a small percentage. It's just not worth their yeah. while. Yeah. Um, so I'm speaking to an agent to see if we can make something work, but I'm not, I'm not hanging on that. Um, inbound still come in. I'm lucky to have agreements with some major exhibition organisers, but you know, in, in lieu of a speaking slot, my, I get two stands for my businesses or whatever. So that works really well. Um, so it's a, it's a quasi fee and everyone's happy and there's some business benefit for me. So that works. Um, in terms of my um, outbounds, 
we what we do is we include it as part of our proposition without boring your listeners too much about dnt we effectively sell through the franchisor to their franchisees right so we have one relationship with franchisor oh, i see yep. and then look after let's say 100 200 300 franchisees so we sell that as part of the benefit to the franchisor of us being the accredited accountant is that we can deliver keynotes we can do this we can do that we can do the other so that helps us generate the leads and it means that i've i've spoken for some amazing companies as part of it which i never would get in um ordinarily so it's great from a um, from an assets perspective and pictures and so on but in terms of outbound i still don't do too much because it, it goes to charity and it is a bit of a side project that i enjoy it's more of a hobby than a business yeah well i was going to say you've got plenty of other things going on to be honest but i love that model that's a great alternative model for people to consider who who do have a business you know is is building up that you know proposition to include your speaking that's really good that's yeah, it, works, it, it works really well and it's all part of our marketing web as well because we found that we can't rely on one stream of marketing as a business uh, as most businesses can't so we see the personal brand the speaking um, the stuff we do online, the stuff we do offline, um, all of our different streams of marketing, they all connect together and just make it easier for people to do business with us. Yeah, and it's just it's adding value, isn't it? Absolutely. Brilliant. Well, Carl, before I go into my um, standard questions, uh, have you got any, I mean, this is, a, I guess, an episode, again, focused on sales, but particularly around sales or anything else that's going to help speakers or entrepreneurs grow their business sort of key tips before we move on definitely um so the biggest tip would be um to think about what your customers want not what you want to deliver mm -hmm. and it's a trap we all fall into we we become so obsessed by what it is that we've got to offer but we don't necessarily appreciate what it is that our customers want to buy yeah um having said that we need to be mindful of the um I, they say it's a henry ford quote but apparently that's been discredited but if you ask your customers what they want, um, you would, they would simply ask for faster horses. Yes. So you have to find that balance, but you have to wear the customer hat rather than the supplier hat. Um, in terms of growing the business, it, it's a real challenge. Um, a great book that I recommend is Robert Kiyosaki, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Yes, um, I don't know if you've... Oh, you've read it. Fantastic. So you know the model of the cash flow quadrant. Yes. And it explains that people move from employed to self-employed then over to business owner and investor. Now that mindset shift of going from being self-employed to a business owner is a shift that I believe a lot of um, speaker consultants, speaker coaches could go through by nurturing a team, building a team and extracting them, themselves from the day-to-day -day doing. Yeah. But it takes, not only does it take um, effort and money and process and so on, it takes a leap of faith um, giving your IP, giving your credibility to somebody else. Yeah. But if you want to, if you want to take, let's say, what might be a struggling speaker consultancy business, earning a few grand a month but running out of time, um, if you want to take it, you've got two options. You can increase your prices but still be limited by the number of hours, or actually turn it into a business. Yeah. And turning it into a business is the one thing that actually removes any barriers to success. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And I, I, there's another book, um, The E-Myth by Gerber, I think it is, that is, you know, the similar sort of point. It's about starting off, even as a business owner, as entrepreneur, as if you're going to sell the business, you know, putting those systems and processes in place so that you can scale, isn't Com it? Completely. Although, I mean, I've, I've been fortunate enough to meet Michael Gerber and have lunch with him. Oh, no. I actually, I disagree with him on one point. So in that book, he says, uh, and I just, I just say it as a warning for anyone who might um, pick up on the book and read it. In that book, he says that in a business, extraordinary people plus ordinary systems are ordinary results. And ordinary people plus extraordinary systems are extraordinary results. Oh. I think that's changed. I believe now that to have extraordinary results, you need extraordinary people and extraordinary systems. With the way that business is developing now, systemization works to a point but actually people want real people nowadays yes 
back to your H2H thing again. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yes. that's really, really helpful. Thank you, Carl. That's brilliant. Um, wanted to ask a few standard questions. Um, what is the best thing speaking's done for you? I would say the best thing it's done for me is to give me the confidence that I can spread my message further than a small meeting room. Brilliant. And we may have covered this already because it might have been that first gig or the second gig, actually. Is, is, there, a, is there a worse gig that you've had? It, was it yes. the second one or another no, one? No, there's far worse. <laughs> so there was an event that I spoke at uh, this year, actually, and it was, at the, it was at the start of the Beast of the East. It was in London and the heating packed up. Oh no. Okay, so I was there and I had just bought myself a new coat and it was, it was fantastic. Sarah, it was a 750 quid coat. <laughs> I had saved up for this coat, okay? <laughs> and it was so warm. So I had this coat and I, I'd, um, I, I'd got to the stage, dumped my bag and coat behind the stage without thinking and saw somebody I recognised in the audience. So I went over and started speaking to him. All of a sudden, out of the corner of my eye, I saw somebody run onto the stage. And I thought they were about to pinch my bag. So I turned around and they shouted, there's smoke. Oh, no. Okay, this was five minutes before my talk. My coat had set on fire. Because it was a parka filled with feathers. The feathers had caught on fire because there was lights behind the stage as well as in front. Okay, so we were very lucky the smoke alarm didn't go off. And this was yeah, five minutes before I was talking. I had to quickly grab my stuff. My life's possessions were in there, move them to the side, compose myself, and then start talking. And the clicker broke. Oh, no. I, it, was, it was one of those where anything that could go wrong did go wrong. Luckily, I still got my 4.8 out of 5 um, attendee rating, which was amazing. But then I had a second slot in the afternoon. And it was so cold by then, I had to wear the coat that had holes in it. I was walking around on stage with feathers following me. <laughs> <laughs> so every time I lifted my arms, feathers would drop out. Oh, no. But has to go down as the worst gig. <laughs> I, I hope you use the opportunity to mention burning platform and lighting a fire under people. Because... Oh, so, so for social media, it was amazing. Because whilst I was talking... I. I had some pictures taken of me and the, the way the lights were shining, it actually looked like there was a fire behind me, even though there wasn't. So it was amazing. Uh, you know, we really played on the Carl is literally on fire, etc., etc. <laughs> so, so it worked really well from a promotional perspective. Um, look, the charity got a really good sum out of it. So the charity were happy. Um, the insurance paid for the coat. So I'm happy. Okay. Brilliant. That's a great story. Like that one. Okay. Um, Next question. What is the one book you've read that's had the most impact on your life and why? So that would be Tim Ferriss, 4-Hour Workweek. Oh, yeah, me too. Um, yeah. yeah, I think that book is phenomenal. And the reason I could say it so quickly was I recommended his podcast earlier as well. Yeah. Um, in, it tends to be a Marmite book. Some people think the guy's a bit of a pillock. But you need to bear in mind he was in his mid-20s and had done quite well for himself. And you don't have to take what he does literally. Yeah. But if you, if you take it for what it is and take him for what he is, the message within the book is that you don't need to conform to ordinary. Instead, you can just be yourself and you can question why we're tied to a nine to five Monday to Friday structure in life. Why is it that we're expected to do certain things ourselves rather than get other people to do it? And that book was a real eye-opener to the fact that the world is so much more than what we've been taught within the industrial age and the education system of study hard, get a good job, keep your head down, and hopefully you'll get a pension at the end. So for that and the feeling of freedom that I've got from implementing some of the strategies in the book, I think that's by far the best one. Brilliant. Thank you. That's great. And I'll put a link in the show notes to that. So people and, and Robert Kiyosaki's one, which is also can be a game changer for people, like you said. Brilliant. OK, what is the best? I'm going to give you the option, either speaking advice or business advice you've ever had and why? So the best business advice I've had, and I think it relates to speakers as well, was actually from my dad. Um, so that my dad wasn't a wasn't a high fine businessman by any stretch of imagination. He's a locksmith. Um, but he said, 
that I should always keep a file of facts and a note of everybody I meet in business because you never know when you might need them, when, when you might need to keep in touch with them. Now, clearly it's not a file of facts anymore, but that concept of just keeping track of everyone that you speak to and bearing them in mind when speaking to other people has, I believe, really helped me build a strong network. That's a brilliant piece of advice, yeah. And it's one of those common sense ones, but we so often don't do it. You know, we get lost yes. in our own lives, don't we, and forget, and then we can't remember people. This is it, and we get so focused on collecting business cards or giving out business cards, but we don't actually try and understand who is Sarah, what's she all about, yeah. who would be really helpful to her, and who could she be really helpful to. Yeah, brilliant. Great piece of advice. Cool. Now, last question. If you could have one mentor, alive or dead, fictional or non-fictional, who would you choose and why? Oh, wow. One mentor. That's a tricky one. So I could come up with a really unpopular one here. Right. Um, I think that it would either be a personal development expert or a politician. Okay. So a personal development expert to keep my mindset on track and keep myself focused and to understand why I do things in the way I do. A politician to help me improve my way of thinking, overcoming challenges and to understand how to harness the crowd. Now, the challenge with politicians is, but it's likely that one of the ones I would choose probably wouldn't be someone I like. Because if I look at the criteria that I've just given, and you think about recent politicians, you'd be looking at Nigel Farage, Jeremy Corbyn, Donald Trump. Oh, God. They've all, yeah, they've all, but you can't deny that they're all good negotiators, they've harnessed the power of the crowd, and they've managed to think in a different way to the way that everyone else does, even though their policies are all ridiculous. They're not mainstream. Um, so. It would be between a politician or a personal development expert. Really tough one. Right. Um, gun to my head, Tony Robbins. Nice one. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Tony Robbins um, for the sheer fact that he could help me. Um, I, he's built a brand for himself. He actually ticks a lot of the politician boxes. Yeah. Yeah. And he's got that finance bit as well. He's moving more into finance these days, isn't he? I've seen a lot of him on investment. Interesting. Cool. Have you been to any of his events, Carl? Yeah, so I've been to one. Um, I went to one, which he had an hour slot in London. It was at the National Achievers Conference. It was an hour slot, but he actually went on for four hours. So it was fantastic. But it was also a very clear sales pitch to his next programme. Oh, right. I'm with you. As, as, they, as they often are. That's yes. brilliant. So, Carl, you've been absolutely fat. I love talking to you. I love your style. It's really refreshing. There's no what you see is what you get and what you get is some great advice and great tips so thank you very much for sharing those now you've got no two, two books i'm going to put a link to them to the, in the show notes the startup coach and the other one is the franchising handbook is it that's correct yes yeah so put those in the show notes and what about if people want to um book you for speaking or to work with you or to to get you know to get uh, onto dnt's books how would they go about that where's the best place to get hold of you Okay, so the best bet is to either contact through social media or by my website. So carlreader.com is effectively a hub for all of those things. So there's links to the businesses. If they want to work with one of the businesses, there's links to the press team and to my PA for speaking. So they get diverted on the right course based on where they want to go from there. Um, but the best way to keep in touch is on social media. I, I try and be as human as possible. So I don't buy it on, on every channel. It's at Carl Reader, C-A-R-L-R-E-A-D-E-R. Um, so that's probably the best way if people just want to say hi or ask any questions. Brilliant. Thank you. I will put all those links in the show notes as well. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Thank you very much, Carl. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you very much. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode and you got some useful tips for your sales, for your speaking and business. And with the fire and the feathers, I bet it looked like Carl was trying to recreate a one-man version of Dan Brown's Angels and Demons on that stage. Okay, as ever, thank you so much for listening. And also, as I always say, please leave a rating or review if you enjoyed the show, wherever you're listening. And also, hit subscribe. 
if you don't want to miss an episode. And who doesn't want to hear me tackling the miracle morning, 5am or whatever time I've got to get up. Who knows? Anyway, have a wonderful week and I'll speak to you next time. And don't forget to grab your life, buy the nuts and get cracking. If you want to discover how to create a killer pitch that makes you or your business stand out from the crowd, then you'll want to grab your copy of my book, Straight to the Top. It will help you clarify your USP, your business story, who your target market is, and what will make them buy. You'll discover how to get the edge on the competition and position your offer for success. You'll also get proven elevator and investor pitch frameworks to use for maximum impact. To get the book for free plus lots of extra bonuses, you just pay shipping and handling, go to standoutpitch.com today.